Hi, I'm Will. And I'm Mike. And we both lead design teams, and you're listening to This TBH. A podcast about design. This month, we've got a very special live edition for you. We were invited to host the panel at Product Party with Octopus Ventures. We were really excited to take part. We've wanted to record the podcast with the live audience for a long time now. And when the opportunity arose to interview such a wonderful panel, we jumped at the chance. So without further ado, here is This TBH Live. I've got notes because I have a terrible memory and I don't want to do anybody an injustice. Uh, So first is Rachel, who's on the far left, Director of UX at Multiverse. Uh, Multiverse are building an alternative to university and corporate training via professional apprenticeships. Previously, you're at Google for eight years. You've worked with some incredible people and organisations that I'm incredibly, incredibly jealous of. Doctors Without Borders, Seth Godin, BMW, founded Design Jam. Wow. I'm embarrassed because I'm a big fan of both of yours. I love the podcast. I'm so excited <laughs> to be on it. <laughs> Next, we've got Nat, who we've already heard has already been on the podcast before, so far more familiar with this one. Head of designer Attest, who are revolution user research, right? We're trying to. Uh, and then previously, head of design at Bulb. And then finally, we've got Camilla Diaz in the middle, who, uh, sorry, I need to find my place in the notes. (laughs) Group head of product design at Moonpig, coming on for two decades worth of experience, worked in multiple countries, the UK, Spain, Australia, has worked with a number of different organisations as well, and did an MBA at Oxford. Doing. Doing, sorry. (laughs) I'm optimistic, I think you're going (laughs) to... Great, so we're going to be talking about designing for growth, and we couldn't ask for a better panel, really, because we are sort of running the gamut in terms of B2B, B2C, a little bit of both, Uh, so we should get some really interesting answers. So I'm going to kick things off. I think closer to... This event got uh, reorganised once before already, but closer to the time I saw a tweet from Andy Budd, and he's known to tweet. I'm sure you're all (laughs) familiar with him. Um, Very uh, famous design leader from Clear Left, and he was saying that he felt when we talk about product-led growth, it's really important that we don't just think that it's making a great product, right? It's more than that. And he was arguing that product-led growth is about putting hooks into our product. So if you think about Google Docs when it came out, you could just send a document to someone who had never used it before, and there was a very low barrier to entry, and they didn't have to download any software, and they could start using it too, and they would become a customer as well. So my question is, if we're, de- if we're intentionally designing for growth, does that mean that we should be seeking out these hooks? And if so, does that mean that we're sort of perhaps deprioritizing our usual responsibility as product designers to focus on a sort of more user-centric approach? How do we balance these two things? Uh, it'd be great to start with Rachel, as you're nodding so emphatically. I'm, I'm happy to <laughs> chat about it, yeah. Um, I think it's a great question. And I think there's, there's maybe a excuse me to put it in here, but maybe a meta question, which is, what is a hook? What does that mean? Um, when we talk about hooks, I think, uh, from your example, what what came to mind was uh, a hook that encourages someone to share something or like get someone else to check out a product or a feature. Um, but I think part of what your question also touches on is hooks that bring a user back into the product, a person back into the product again and again, or potentially, um, you know, if you talk about talk, 
talk about kind of the dark side or the dark patterns in UX. You could talk about um, uh, what's called intermittent reinforcement that um, makes people feel like they're getting rewarded from coming back and doing something, but only sometimes so that uh, you know, research shows that that's quite addictive. So I think there's quite a broad spectrum of what we mean when we talk about hooks. Um, and I think, you know, as with any power, it can be used for good and evil, right? Like, if we think about our product where what we're trying to do is to um, give people access to um, paths into careers who maybe wouldn't have had that access because of uh, barriers to education, um, well, a hook might mean, um, you know, sharing with someone who you think might benefit from this thing who wouldn't have heard of it before, which maybe would be positive, or encouraging or sharing with um, a potential client who would host an apprentice um, at their company. But you could also imagine creating a hook that you know, brings people back into the product again and again um, without necessarily rewarding them or benefiting their time. So again, I think it kind of depends. I think it's, it's worth thinking about incentives of the platform versus incentives of the users. If, if the platform becomes more valuable to people when there are more users on it, then it feels like we're all aligned. Uh, the incentives are going in the right direction and then prioritizing bringing more people into the platform means that everyone gets to benefit, but not every product is like that. So that's something that it's worth considering what your product needs and um, how valuable it is for other people to bring additional users into the platform. And I think they're not necessarily exclusive um, product-led growth and one that is less spoken about design-led growth. Um, they are complementary. So when you're able, to, as designers, we are um, especially placed um, in, a, in a situation where we have a good understanding of what users want and need and the kind of struggles they have. So we can bring that perspective into the product to make sure that we are creating features that are engaging them and getting them to come back to us, hence benefiting the business. So I see them as complementary. And there's maybe one final thing I would add, which is I think sometimes we can kind of get in the bubble of the business and it's our responsibility to like see the user and see their needs. Um, and this idea that um, like I think the business can almost end up starting from engagement with the product is success where, you know, I worked on products where getting people out of the product faster is success because we know that, like, think about search, think about Chrome, right? Getting your answer quickly, that's, that's value to the user. So if what you're trying to optimize for is engagement or spending a lot of time in the product, actually that might be reflecting lower user value rather than higher. Exactly, so defining what the, what the loop is, but also defining what success means, mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. That nicely leads on to one of our other questions, which was, if you're seeking growth and you want to know whether what you're doing is successful, then this all relies on a feedback loop, right? Is it, are we aligned with the company or is success getting somebody out quicker instead of slower? Uh, and so what are some good metrics for um, measuring that success? I'm guessing it depends, but. <laughs> um, it, it definitely does depend, but there are probably a few that uh, off the top of my head are probably the ones I would always want to be able to monitor like what's the customer acquisition cost, what's the trend rate, like how happy are people with the, with the product. They're just, it feels like those are the sort of type of high level things to look out for. And then each product will have its own unique set of things that probably tell you a little bit more about how much value people are getting out of the product and like where are the potential pitfalls or like sources of 
uh, friction or maybe tension. So it's really hard to generalize, I think, beyond the really obvious ones. I think maybe one underrated uh, uh, way of thinking about the product as well is thinking about the brand equity that you build up by having a good product, having a strong brand, having really good marketing, and more monitoring sort of the impact of your brand on like the recognition within the market and uh, propensity to buy, like those things also really matter. And I think it's maybe a little bit harder to see them directly from the product itself. And um, if we are looking at growth, hyper-growth, there's, there's a simple one. Aside from new customer acquisition, there is retention. So you want to make sure that while you're going to chase new customers, you're not losing the ones you have. Otherwise, your base is never going to grow. It's a simple one. Yeah, I think that makes sense. The other one I would add is then thinking about kind of the lifetime value of the customer versus the cost to acquire. So we have a kind of... Um, yeah, the journey of our customer is quite long. An apprenticeship could be a year or two years or three years in some cases. So understanding, you know, are they like how are they retaining in your product and, and how much you earn as a result of that retention, I think, is, is interesting to think about. Um, I think it was was it Daniel Burka? It might have been him, but now I can't remember. Uh, I think it was this this um, conversation that's been ongoing about the relationship um, between designers and researchers and the business. Right, I think understanding inherently what it is that your business needs to be successful, and especially when you start to think about scale-ups and startups, right, the business model can change. So, you know, the thing that I'm trying to do as a, a UX leader in the business is actually understand how do we make our money, and like, what is that? You know, what is the connection between our goal as like product team trying to great, create a great user experience and the goal of the business and what the business sees as, as success. So learning like the difference between like revenue that has been agreed upon to receive and then actually receiving the revenue or thinking about, you know, um, how our sales team or marketing team perceives the product as compared with how I perceive the product or our users perceive the product has been uh, really, really valuable to me. I kind of diverged a bit from your question, Michael. I think it's underrated in, in general designers where we fall flat is understanding the business side of things, hence doing an MBA seems like a good <laughs> idea. I'm interested that no one mentioned net promoter score or NPS. Sort of by definition, the idea that uh, how likely are you to, to recommend it to a friend or a colleague? How much weight would you put in NPS as a, as a metric to measure this kind of success? So I have some thoughts because we've been starting to talk about how to kind of measure, how to measure user experience at our company, which is I think probably the most, one of the most controversial topics we could talk about besides maybe what title to call ourselves. <laughs> um, but I think that, so my sense is that if trying to create some number that the business can look at and see how is our user experience, from what I've learned and from all the great advice I've been getting from our, our user researcher on the team who's been delving really deeply into this, it seems like some combination of things is useful. So measuring something like maybe a net promoter score, um, we measure something that's more like a CSAT, but we do it in at, you know, multiple times at different points in the product, and we combine it with a couple of other questions um, to kind of give us a more a broader sense as well as looking at how that triangulates with the metrics in the product. I think that makes me feel more like we're getting at the thing um, than having just the NPS. Um, 
you know, I think the business often wants a number. Um, but yeah, it's hard to I've come around. I've come around to like MPS at first. Yeah. When uh, when my team was um, like, there was there was a, a conversation between who should own MPS and nobody wanted it. It was the hot potato that everybody just threw at each other. Should marketing own it? Should user research own it? It ended up landing in my team. Um, but really, the problem with NPS is that by itself, it can be a little bit of an empty metric. It's not really telling you much about why customers are giving you the rating they gave you. But um, the researchers in my team did, did amazing work to it in training an algorithm, training the system over a period of time to recognize sentiment. And it got to a point now where we are able to, we, we have very specific dashboards that tell us what, where ratings, specific ratings came from using some of the verbatim that we collect. Um, so we know when somebody is upset with certain parts of the journey or was it the delivery and we're able to feed back that to the business and now it's something so much more useful. Of course we triangulate this with other, other sources of user feedback but it is the first example of an NPS score being useful at all to make decisions. I, I, I think NPS is quite broad because it includes all of your interactions with the whole business. So it might include influence from the customer success teams and sales teams and so on. So it's not, not a particularly great metric when it comes to just thinking about like how good is the product. Uh, but yeah, like you have found that actually analyzing the verbatim content of comments, looking at app store reviews, like any source where people actually get to express what it is that they're happy or unhappy with actually yields much better results in understanding where there are areas to improve. On the subject of salespeople and commercial people, I think in order for a good product-led growth or designing for growth environment, you kind of need that product-led culture in place. And I think that can often be taken for granted, particularly more in, in B2B, where perhaps there's more of a sales-led culture. How do you shift organizational culture so that you can drive for product-led growth and design-led growth? And how can you foster those connections and those relationships with those sort of more commercial and sales-minded teams to, to create a culture where this is all possible? I, I, yeah, this one, this one is um, a great question. I really like this one because it's, it's one I feel particularly strongly about. Um, we don't really have salespeople at Moonpeak, but uh, in one of my previous companies at Pivotal, they're a consultancy and we had a sales team that after doing some research about like the kinds of projects we were getting that, that were getting to us, um, I, I found a disconnect between the understanding the sales team had about what we do and what we actually do. Um, so it was a it was a long process of many many touch points just to try and bring them on the journey. So anything from education, holding workshops with them, but also. Uh, showing them the kind of value that we could bring even to their own processes. So we did, we did training with them, like for example, bringing them into, into our user research sessions just to, to get them to understand what the day-to-day -day of our um, abilities were and how they could better leverage so that they could actually go and offer to clients something that we could do and that was actually our strength. And other things that are, that are less I think it's, they're, they're underrated, but like going to the pub with the sales team, there's, there's something really big about forming personal relationships with the people you work with to get them to you know, appreciate you and understand you. Yeah, 
I was going to say that last bit about the human relationships. I mean, ask them questions about where the money comes from. <laughs> like, I know that seems really, it's so funny when I, I'm interviewing candidates, I, that's most of what I'm spending my time on at the moment is like looking for people to bring into our design and research team. And it is really surprising to me how few people ask me like, what is your business model? You know, how, how do you pay for the thing that you do? Um, and it is so inherently connected to the product and design culture of a company and, and our ability to do our jobs well. So understanding that relationship and like, yeah, having a beer with the sales team. I actually haven't done that yet with our sales team. I'm going to do that. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel like personal relationships, nothing really can beat them. Um, because that opens up all kinds of channels of communications that otherwise I think are quite hard to come by organizationally just by default. Um, this kind of sharing of information of like where we're winning, where we're losing, why, what potential prospects saying in uh, conversations like, yeah, it's quite hard to get to unless um, you participate in uh, quite a lot of the commercial conversations. So I definitely recommend making friends there. And you alluded to this, so asking them questions. Um, we, we speak a big deal about having empathy to users, but do we, how much time do we spend developing empathy with internal teams in the business? So how many designers have actually gone to sales meetings and are aware of the kind of sales targets that the sales team have? So developing an understanding of what they do as well. When you show interest in what they do, they will inherently show an interest in what you do. I think it's worth also maybe just kind of calling out and putting on the table that there is often an inherent tension between kind of serving sort of the product and trying to achieve those like longer term product goals, which I think can be longer term rather than shorter term. Uh, whereas the sales team often works on very short term goals, right? We have a quarterly target and we need to meet it. And what are you helping us? You know, how are you helping us do that today? And I think just kind of being aware of that inherent tension and the, you know, the awareness that you asking a, a salesperson or someone on, um, on that team to participate in a workshop today for something that's going to maybe help them in three months, six months, a year, I think you know, that can feel like quite a big ask as well. So, so having a better understanding of, of the way they work can kind of help you, uh, help you help them engage with you and vice versa. When I think about product-led growth, I think about really great product and design, which makes a compelling proposition that organically grows. But we also know that good design takes time. It takes care and attention. And when you're striving for hyper growth, because of these targets, these shorter term deadlines, that's kind of hard to come by and justify. So how do you balance these seemingly two opposing ideologies around how to approach building a company? It is quite a tricky balance, but I think it really helps to have really clear priorities uh, and working closely with product to figure out what those are and align those with the organizational strategy. I think that really helps to resolve tensions like what should we be focusing on long term, short term. Um, in general, there's probably only so much space for some of the longer term bets in any team. So like figuring out how to prioritize those so that you can focus on a smaller number of ones that can come slightly sooner than others is probably the right thing to do um, and try to get as efficient as possible uh, doing the day-to-day -day stuff and more shorter term things so that you then 
have some space and opportunity to work on the longer term stuff. But I do think it's um, a little bit of a false economy not to invest in the longer term thinking, uh, because at some point you will have to pay back that debt and you will have to start thinking about you know what's coming after uh, a collection of features that we sort of built organically. I think it's um, yeah, it's sort of borrowing from the future for the now, which. It sometimes is probably the right approach and the right strategy, but I think it's about figuring out, you know, uh, is, is that is now the right time to be borrowing from the future or not? There was a really great talk at um, UXDX last week um, from Emmett, whose last name I, Connolly. Uh, uh, he's um, I think the from VP Intercom. of Design, yeah, for Intercom, um, and he was talking a lot about uh, kind of this gap between product development and company strategy and that there's this amazing like design and research shaped hole in that gap that is called a product vision right it's about how do we leverage the unique skills that we as researchers and designers have to contribute like we have a seat at the table but what have we brought to share um, and i think that's that's this idea of of how we articulate a product vision in a way that only we can, in a way that you know, through visual storytelling can um, help build momentum and alignment across the, the business. Um, so that's something that I'm like, I'm personally very interested in because I think I think this idea of visual storytelling and uh, telling the story of the the person using your product and how it matters for their life is really a healthy practice for the the product team and the business. Um, and I think that uh, through doing that, we can kind of have that that relationship and that impact um, that we want. Yeah, yeah I'm not, if, if I can go to the gist of your question, so is it, is it about prioritization? Is it about, about balancing long-term and short-term goals, yeah? Uh, yeah. It's, I, for me, I think it's also about compromise and how you find that compromise and... I'm personally quite wary of like single ideologies that say this is absolutely the way to success and it's often understanding the value of other people as well and that balance. Yeah. But Yeah, I definitely think it's, it, it is the million dollars question that I don't think any company has cracked down properly or at least none one I've seen. Because usually what happens is you may have great vision and great ideas, but if there is, uh, I don't know, not reaching budgets, and there's an, emerg uh, there's an urgent moment, then everybody just becomes very reactive and focus on picking as much low-hanging fruit as they can. And there's just so much low-hanging fruit you can pick. And yeah, to your, to your comment, like you are going to pay for that in the long term. But it's just difficult to get, to get people to not be reactive. You, you have to put lots of processes in place, and you have to be incredibly patient. Um, one thing that has worked more or less for, for, for our team was to get a good understanding of the cycles, decision cycles in the company. So year one, OKRs were released, and then everybody writes OKRs, so then we have all these great ideas of things we want to solve for the business and the user. But then, you know, um, soon we realized that by the moment OKRs are released, it's too late. <laughs> So then attempt to the next year, you start a couple of months in advance and you start getting time to bring in the right people into, into the conversations. But then you realize that there are 
other people behind these people making some of those decisions and then like it goes all the way up to the board. So then year three, you have, now you've had a year planning um, on how you're going to address some of those things. And that, the, the, that planning and that um, being forewarned, that anticipation is probably the best thing that has worked for us. So understanding the cycles of the company, understanding the cycles of each team, and then having a couple of things that we're banging on about for, for consistently over a period of time. That's, it's maybe worth knowing. So I think that piece about the kind of thinking about like the cadence of how the business operates, it really resonates. And it, it makes me think about um, what worked for us in the, in the last year where we knew, I knew that kind of at the end of the year around Christmas time, everything gets kind of quiet and we were able to kind of sneak in a couple of workshops with the design team, which we didn't really have time for. Um, and then because we had those materials that, you know, the team had talked with, you know, the product managers and the engineers, but also their stakeholders, we kind of had a package of work that we were then able to kind of go out with and say like, hey, what are your reactions to this? And sort of had a, you know, an organic way of developing a product vision, even though we were, we were really in kind of year one of that, in my opinion. Yeah, um, and there's a lot we would do differently. It does take a while to, to build. So in, in our case, uh, I don't know what the cycles of your business are, but we're an e-commerce and we're a seasonal business. Mm -hmm. So we have four peaks, commercial trading peaks every year. We have Christmas, Mother's Day, and Valentine's. Then we have birthdays that go across the whole year. And there's just those, and they happen every year. So we have tons of data from previous years that we can also pull from. So that, that also has helped into, in, getting us to, in, in helping us anticipate the needs of the business. Uh, I want to touch a little bit on this idea of like A, being prepared with like, here's one I made earlier, and then being consistent with the messaging and always talking about the same thing, because in my experience, it's also been the case that you have to have something ready to be able to show people and to get them excited about ideas. But sometimes you also have to like, keep talking about the same thing over and over again until the timing is right. And you finally caught that moment of time where like, ah, now it's possible. Now people are ready for this. Um, and then you strike. Yeah, so <laughs> skip it for a product designer, I don't know, UX, UI, AI, <laughs> and patience. <laughs> Big thanks to Karen at Octopus Ventures, as well as all the panellists. We really enjoyed the conversation. You can find all of our panellists on Twitter. Nat Buckley is at that Nat Buckley. Camilla Diaz is at UX underscore chick. And Rachel Illen Simpson is at Rillen. That's all we have time for this week. If this is your first time listening, please consider subscribing. And if you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review. They really help. Until next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>